the thing you like is never above another human being. Except maybe Donald Trump. <laughs> and a couple so, like, of his uh, cohorts. Like if I'm, you know, if I'm standing at the edge of a cliff and Donald Trump and a guy holding the last remaining copy of The Phantom Menace <laughs> are both hanging off the edge, I don't know who I'd grab. <laughs> but I think I would probably grab The Phantom Menace guy. is a weird movie because there's a lot of negatives and some things I genuinely liked coming Fuck away from you. Me. Yeah. Should we tell people why we're here if in case they didn't read the title of the fucking video? Yeah. Hello. Welcome back to the Waffle Press Movie Podcast. Your host, Jim Crespo, with Matt Garingo. How you doing? I'm great. All right. Welcome to our retrospective on... Gran Torino, the movie where Clint Eastwood's a racist, and then by the end of the movie, he's still a racist, but we learn about him a little bit. So that, Gran Torino is what happens when your movie lacks an arc. I feel like you're trying to relate that to The Phantom Menace, the movie that we're here to talk about can't imagine why you draw that conclusion. Well, because we're here to talk about The Phantom Menace today on our Star yes. Wars retrospective. It's a divisive movie, to say the least. Yes. Matt, why do you think that is? Um... Because some people are geniuses like me, and some people are fucking dumbasses. Um, no, I, I don't want to say that. I don't, I'm not, all right, let's just start with, I really don't want to make anyone feel bad for, like, liking these movies. If you like them, great. Good for you. Every time I sit down to watch them, last time I did was two years ago when uh, Force Awakens was coming out, and I kind of just forced myself to watch all the Star Wars movies again. And I was like, I got to do the prequels, because what the fuck? Every time I sit and watch them, I'm like, maybe this will be the time I finally enjoy them. And also, not like for the first time, because I saw this one. This movie came out when I was like five or six. I saw it in theaters, and it wasn't like I hated it as a six-year-old. Every time I watch them, I'm just like, I'm baffled as to like what people take away from this movie. Specifically, this one in Attack of the Clones. For me, it's more of like, I, I, I have trouble seeing like good in Attack of the Clones more. But I actually have some positives when we get to that, too. Phantom Menace is, like, at, at times, I think it has some of the best material that you, you could see where Lucas is trying to go with it. But it really just doesn't come together at all. Yeah. Uh, and there might be some reasons for that. Let's, uh, let's just wind the clock back a little bit further. Okay. Because people weren't running to theaters to see Phantom Menace. People were running to theaters to see the trailer for Phantom Menace. <laughs> The first trailer. Um, and I believe it was shown in front of like movies like Meet Joe Black and Under Siege. And like ticket tickets for those movies shot up by like 600% <laughs> when it was announced that the Phantom Menace trailer would be playing for it. And people were paying multiple times to see this trailer. And like movie theaters eventually caught on that some people were like, like you know asking for refunds before the movie started, so then they stopped offering refunds. 
So the real diehards were paying over and over again, not even to see a movie, just to see a trailer. Let's just say a lot of people were very excited. Yeah. <laughs> to the point where people were camping out. I believe the longest I know is I know people were camping out at least two months before the release in front of certain theaters. Jesus Christ. Uh, and part of it was because you, I, I don't believe you could pre-order tickets for The Phantom Menace. I think like, the, like they were worried about scalping, you know. Mm-hmm. Like people are going to buy up like the tickets and then be like, all right, I'll resell them for like $300 for opening night. <laughs> so, so it was literally every theater in the country was doing first come first serve for uh, Phantom Menace. So that's why people had to camp out. And if you get the book, get the book, how Star Wars conquered the universe. There's a great chapter in it about a whole group that camped out for like a month. And it's, it's kind of heartbreaking. <laughs> but it's a real interesting read of just what people were waiting for at the time. So needless to say, this is, this is going to be a pretty big movie. Like if any movie had the chance, the opportunity to knock down Titanic from the numero uno spot, like this, this would have been it. Yeah. Uh, it didn't. And I think it could have. Yeah. I think it could have had some other things been a little different. <laughs> Can you elaborate? If they had made a completely different movie. <laughs> This is the, probably the most hyped film ever. And we, like, if you thought Star Wars was like, like you couldn't get away from it in the lead up to Force Awakens, that was nothing compared to Phantom Menace. I remember the marketing for Phantom Menace as a kid because it was like anywhere you went, there was some promotional tie-in. Like I remember Pizza Hut having a tie-in, fucking KFC having some sort of tie-in. I remember you got like, and, and that was the way, because, you know, this is, when I was a kid, you didn't have like these, you know, websites. I mean, they existed, but I wasn't on them where you could go and like discuss all the details. Like I wasn't on ain't it cool news. I, all the information I got about these movies was through the like promotional shit and uh, like toy lines. Um, like I, I was a big, I was really into Lego. I got like the Lego magazine every month as a kid. And they, that was the first thing I saw that like gave away actual plot details of the Phantom Menace. <laughs> Cause you could buy like the droid ships and you know, the Naboo Starfighters. I also remember going to, we, I went to Pizza Hut with a friend, like the only other friend I had that was like super into Star Wars. And we got uh, a toy in it, which was like this weird like magnet thing that was uh, the Queen's ship that they escaped from Naboo in. Oh, yeah. um, You know, the, the silver reflecting thing. Um, and we were like, wow, this must be like the new Millennium Falcon. Like I remember, this, I remember us talking about that. <laughs> like this is going to be the ship they're flying around in all the whole movie. That's awesome. And you, and I mean, and I saw you weren't wrong, kind of. Uh, not, yeah, I wasn't wrong. I just remember, I remember the hype for this thing being huge, but not like in a way where I was like, I wasn't really super hyped. I just knew it was eventually coming. <laughs> I did, but I didn't know what like I had no concept of time really. When you're a kid, just things kind of keep happening to you. You just go to whatever movies out that month, and it was the Phantom Menace. And you know, I think that's a good point to bring up because. George Lucas always kind of refers to these as kids' movies, you know? And then mm-hmm. they get, like, heavy, and then Anakin, like, burns to death on screen almost. And it's just like, well... Yeah. But um, at the same time, I feel like the prequels really are the ones for kids because I think they're the people that enjoy them the most. And again, I think it is important not to discredit anybody who does like these movies because mm-hmm. I, I want to like them. Every time I go back to watch them, I want to like them a little more. Mm-hmm. But I, <laughs> there's always something that just, like, stops me from doing so like this wholly mm. giving myself over to it like uh, yeah, it feels like there's yeah. just a wall you keep crashing into every time you're watching it yeah like i want to enjoy this and that just doesn't happen i never want to hate i don't want to hate any movie really 
Like even movies I fucking talk huge shit about, I'm happy when they're good. I mean, at most I have to like, you know, act all humble when I admit that a movie I was shitting on ended up, I ended up liking like years later, but it's, it's so far it hasn't happened with Phantom Menace. Or any of the pre... I'm, I'm really interested in watching the next two now, because I, I just finished re-watching The Clone Wars, the cartoon. Mm-hmm. So it's all really fresh in my mind. So I want to see if that, like, affects how I watch uh, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. But this one's so, like, disconnected from those other two, you really don't even need to watch it. Like, so little happens in this movie that, like, matters later, other than Palpatine becoming, you know, he's, he's going to become the new Chancellor. And a couple characters meet each other, but you don't need those scenes. There's so much of this movie you could cut. There's a lot of, the, there's a lot of stuff in the prequels you could just cut, but yeah. I'll save that. No, I, I think that's the biggest problem with Phantom Menace. Is that it feels mm-hmm. inconsequential? Yeah, uh, I, that's one. Obviously, one of the big concerns going forward with like the Star Wars spinoff standalone movies is like, well, do they even like matter to anything? Not just like a story, mm-hmm. but like a, as a movie, they don't feel like that heavy. Like the Han Solo movie, like why do I even care about that coming out? Um, but Phantom Menace is is that it's already kind of that. <laughs> like every, yeah. characters meet each other. They go from point A to point B, back to point A. There's not even really a point C. Um, mm. There's like a, a point A, point five, which is Tatooine. But yeah, they go. They get a little detour there. Yeah, and um. I, I kind of like this idea about um, trying to handle things politically in a franchise called Star Wars. It's like it's almost kind of funnily ironic, but like mm. it's not exactly self-aware. But I, I really yeah. like the idea. We're like, all right, we got to go get help from the Senate. And if you're aware of actual human politics, you know that sometimes people are idiots. And they're like, yeah. well, there's no, there's no proof of this. Oh, well, they said they didn't do anything wrong. Okay. And then, like, that, that's what happens in Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. So it's the way it plays out isn't exciting. But I kind of like that idea. And they're like, well, we've got to do it ourselves in the finale. Like, that's, that's, that's something that I really caught on to this time and I, I mm-hmm. kind of admired. I think that's it. I, I admire the prequels, but I will never, like, love them like I want to, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's a problem with, one, a lot of the ideas are really shaky. Not saying they're all bad, but they're on a lot of really shaky foundation that would need great execution to pull all of them off. And if there's one thing the Phantom Menace definitely doesn't have is good execution. <laughs> There's just so many scenes. I try to keep... I lost count of the number of scenes that are literally just people standing in a circle talking. <laughs> There's a lot of scenes like that in this movie. Yeah. And, and I get that you have to have one. I mean, like, you know, you look back at uh, fucking New Hope. You know, there's the scene where all the uh, Imperial generals are discussing. Like, kind of, But that's in, that scene's important because it reminds everyone in the audience what's going on. It's the first time we see Vader use the Force. So usually, this usually scenes where people sit around and talk have more going on than just exposition. But this movie, there seems to be like walls in between every element. Like there's a scene that's specifically for exposition. There's a scene that's specifically for action. There's a scene that's specifically for character. 
development. They don't ever blend together like most movies do. Yeah, they feel very and, static. Yeah. Blech. It's 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 very bizarre. Um, uh, I will say, I think the framing, like the compositions, are nice. Like, there's some nice blocking. Like, they look nice on screen. It's not telling us anything about who these people are, but they look nice together. But that's you know, I think the blocking in this one would be a little better than in some of the later movies. Because you know, once you, once someone points out to you how often people sit on couches and talk <laughs> in the sequels, it's hard to like not see it. So that's like one of those big problems this movie has. Yeah, and not that any of those things are inherently bad by themselves; they just don't contribute anything. At least here. So let's let's take a couple steps back though, because there's there might be an explanation as to why some of the blocking is very good. In this movie, at least you think so. <laughs> so you know, back so back in 1994, Lucas started writing the prequels, right? Mm -hmm. um, some people assume he wrote it, wrote all the prequels at the same time, um, which apparently did not happen. Um, he he sat down and wrote the Phantom Menace, and he had supposedly there were 15 pages in his like you know in his uh. I think they're like the they call them the blue binders. I think it's blue, where he keeps all the Star Wars notes. And there were 15 pages that kind of talked about uh, what was going to happen in the prequels. Like even that, that guy uh, Dale Pollock who wrote Skywalking has claimed to have seen some of these pages, and that Jar Jar was in some of these pages. And he so, he would have seen these back in like '83. So <laughs> Jar Jar Binks might be an older character than we know. Lucas wanted to shoot all three of the prequels together. The environment he made the prequels in was very different than uh, the environment he made the originals in. Now he had free reign on time, budget, and location. Because he was going to shoot a lot of it against the green screen. There was only going to be one real location shoot, um, which was going to be uh, in Tunisia for Tatooine. Um, but why did Lucas decide to come back and do the prequels? Like, what, what was the thing that brought him back to Star Wars? I know we talked about, like, the, the fucking special editions. Well, the big thing that always gets pointed out is that, um, he saw, he got to see ILM work on Jurassic Park and make the first digital dinosaurs, and that was the moment where Lucas felt that technology had finally caught up with his vision for the movie. And I don't really think vision, though, is the right word. Because the thing is, Lucas wants to make... He wants to be an independent studio. He wants to be making movies free of any studio constraints. And that's what he saw CGI as a tool for. Because now he didn't need to build costly sets. He didn't have to have huge warehouses to house all this stuff. Didn't have to have tons of, you know, physical models. All sorts of stuff. Now he could just, you know, set up a couple blue screens, and then he could have a whole movie. And that would free him from the constraints of studio politics. Uh, in fact, he had his company, you know, ILM is technically his company. Um, they teamed up with uh, Silicon Graphics and made uh, something called the Joint Environment for Digital Imaging. 
or J E D I or Jedi. <laughs> um, and at the same time, you know, Lucas was also experimenting with in the eighties. He helped develop uh, digital editing tools, which were called, uh, I believe, they call them Edit Droid and Sound Droid. And some of these editing tools allowed Lucas to not just edit scenes quicker on a computer. He could actually move actors around from different scenes and put them together. Um, you, if you actually watch like really closely, especially, I remember it being really noticeable in Revenge of the Sith, you can actually tell that certain scenes where two actors are talking to each other, are, they're completely different takes kind of pushed together. It's really bizarre and awkward. But that's what Luke, Lucas saw that, okay, now I just need, I know I need to shoot a couple things in front of green screen, then I can make the whole movie in editing now because I have all the digital technology I need. And if I don't, if I like one actor in one shot, but not the other actor, and think that actor did better in a different shot, I can take those two different scenes and edit them together digitally. This is how George Lucas thinks movies should be made. The idea by itself, I don't think, is is terrible. I think it could do it could be a big help if uh, you know for time constraints or like if you really need to push something. There's probably a, made, a way to make it work. Yeah, I don't think, I think that it. this, yeah, I, well, I'm saying, like, you shouldn't go in with the goal to make your movie like this. Oh, no, no, not at all. Like, you should, like, this is good for, like, you know, backups, but it gets rid of a lot of the stuff that makes acting really fun and interesting. Like, when you watch actors, but now if, like, the actors are just another tool to you, it can really affect their performances and how the audience views them. Um, I think a big thing everyone talks about is, you know, Terrence Stamp is uh, the Supreme Chancellor in this movie. And he never met Natalie Portman, who he has a long dialogue scene with in the Senate. Because they their scenes were shot on completely different days. <laughs> and George Lucas just like digitally edits them together. And again, like I'm saying, this stuff happens in movies all the time. Um, there's there's sort of there's lots of stories about like weird ways movies have come together, but they're usually not the goal to make movies like this, but for Lucas it was a goal. And honestly, the, the trickle-down of what Lucas did with these prequels has actually been very good for other filmmakers, in my opinion. Um, he's done a, a lot of the technology Lucas has helped develop has made it very easier for, like, you know, just any schlub out there to make their own movie with just, like, a couple, thou a couple thousand dollars. Um, all the editing software Lucas has pushed over the years, digital cameras, all that stuff. But... Lucas was using these prequels as kind of a testing ground for all this stuff. And that is what leads to some of the lopsided filmmaking. And again, so, and also, uh, um, I'm sure you, you've seen the behind the scenes documentary that is off, that is now infamous. Oh, it's incredible. The Phantom Menace. It's, it's, it's incredible it's watching. Yes. It's like an episode of the office. It's really, oh yeah. But you know what the, the sad thing is about it? Cause I rewatched it. I get less of the, like, incompetence going on and more just, like, they, they're all trying really hard, but all their focus seems to be on everything else except the story. Yeah, that's, that's the big thing. Like, and, and you can tell like, everyone's really passionate about working on this movie. Mm. No one was lazy in, in these movies. Mm. 
Yeah, like everyone was, everyone wanted to be here. Everyone was super excited. Like you get like all these people to come together, and it's a dream. Everyone that got to work on Star Wars, it's kind of a dream deal, you know. Yeah. But, and there's and this is still in an era of like model making. So like you see model makers having a great time. You see tons of digital effects artists like getting to try out completely new technologies. Um, yeah. all digital characters, for the like that and like costume design it had to have been a, like everyone was having a blast. But no one was paying attention to like the big picture. <laughs> uh, well, I will say that uh, just really quick, I want to talk about that that documentary because again, you just see so many like passionate like artists and people behind the scenes just coming together and like trying to make everything work, and you feel good watching it. Like, but it's also kind of sad. Yeah. Like I was when I was rewatching, there's like this hope. Like you're watching, like can't this all go the other way? Yeah. Can't like we get to the end and fucking Phantom Menace is like the biggest movie of all time. It's like better than Empire. Like it blows everyone away, and George Lucas ushers in like this whole new era of filmmaking. And he did usher no. in the, the, the filmmaking thing, though, for sure. And you know, what I kind of like about this too. Like in a roundabout way, Lucas has always been trying to like help the little guy in the film, right? Yeah, and in a really weird way, he did because of the technology he pushed and the cameras and the accessibility, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So that, but it, it's kind of nice. Yeah, I mean, honestly, George is at a if, if the, the benefits of technology that come from the prequels probably outweigh all the problems that the prequels have. Like, I think filmmaking kind of benefit, although. A lot of people are, are going to be, they're, they're debatable because, you know, we're in the middle of, like, the big digital shift going on, like, digital versus film. And uh, we've actually seen a lot of pushback against digital filmmaking, like, with, with the new ones, which were shot, the new Star Wars movies have been shot on film um, and look really good, by the way. Seven and eight are both being shot on film. Oh, yeah. Well, seven was shot on film. I don't know what nine's going to do right now because no one knows what the fuck's happening there. <laughs> um, the plan was to shoot on film, but yeah, I don't know anymore. You never know yeah. at this point. But uh, so yeah, like the dig- I get the digital film thing, and when we get to Attack of the Clones, which is the first movie shot on an all digital camera, you can see why people might be really resistant to digital cameras. Um, but at the same time, all right. So like, also, right, you know, right around the uh, the early 90s was when Lucas started making uh, the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Have you ever seen that? I have, and I remember really liking it. Yeah, I've, I've seen a few. I've never, like, said that. I, I know it's a, it's a, another weird situation where Lucas has, like, tried to change the history of what those shows were. Because the thing I always remember was, like, every episode was kind of bookended by, like, the 100-year-old Indiana Jones. And he had like an eye patch, and he was like, you know, I have a story about the time I delivered mail, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then like it goes to a flashback to young Indiana Jones. But that stuff, from what I understand, it was removed from the DVD release of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Yeah, and that's what I saw. So I there's only like one or two episodes where they keep that in because it's like absolutely essential. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that was something that was like odd to me. I was like, oh, okay. I guess maybe Lucas was embarrassed of that, I guess. I don't know. Um, 
Because honestly, the continuity of Indiana Jones doesn't matter as much as the continuity of Star Wars. Yeah. The Indiana Jones Chronicles were a big deal for Lucas because it was the first project that took full advantage of Skywalker Ranch. You know, it was like all the editing, all the special effects, all, all the stuff was done at Skywalker Ranch, the way it was supposed to be done. And that was another sign for Lucas that he could do the prequels that way, where it would all be done through his, you know, production company. The only thing he would have to do was, like, buy warehouses to house some green screens. And they find countries like Australia and New Zealand, which I think had huge filmmaking tax credits at the time. So, because, like, the Matrix films, I think, were shot in either Australia or New Zealand. And they got huge tax breaks to do it. So Lucas was like, because Lucas had shot all the other ones in England. He was like, fuck it, I'm going to Australia. It's much cheaper. <laughs> and also we get, a new, we get a new player added to the Star Wars uh, scene, which is uh, Rick McCollum. Um, Mr. It's so dense. Every single frame has so much going on. <laughs> oh, there's this uh, bit in the, the documentary, too, where... Um... He's talking to some of the kids that are trying out for Anakin, and he has this great line where he's like, oh, this is Anakin when he was a good boy. You know what happened <laughs> after? He joined the film business. <laughs> and he's kind of, you watch him, he's got like that, you know, he's like way like playing up the Hollywood producer type role. Oh, yeah, totally. Like he's almost a guy you, you feel like came out of a satire of what a Hollywood producer does. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Lucas really liked him. And you know why Lucas really liked them? Because he said yes a lot. Yes. He said, <laughs> he, Lucas is basically said in interviews, like, whenever I ask for something, something Rick McCollum will, say, will make a face that shows I've gone a little too far, but the next day he'll figure out how to do it. And, and in Lucas's mind, he's like, all right, well, if he's going to take over producing, that means I can direct the, the prequels. Oh. And remind you, and also, like, re read any press release at the time. People were fucking excited about G George Lucas coming back to direct. Because it was his first movie since Star Wars. And it was like, holy shit, the master has returned. <laughs> There's, like, all this talk about how Lucas, he's, like, fucking, like, oh, my God, he's, like, bringing all these techniques we didn't even know existed. And everyone was super excited about him being the guy. And now people, like laugh at the any hint that he might come back <laughs> everyone's now like get him as far away from star wars as possible which i think <laughs> is the wrong approach but just get someone else for the directing chair george and he also but he he did dabble in getting other people to make these movies um he talked to a uh, frank darabot about doing them oh, uh, do you know that, that is yeah i oh my god yeah. uh uh, Shawshank, Green Mile. Shawshank, yeah. Green Mile, The Mist. Oh, The Mist is fucking awesome. Um, he's the reason why The Walking Dead was good for one season, and then he got fired, <laughs> and that's why the show has never been as good. Yeah, there's more uh, to that, but yeah, I yeah, he's, yeah. He's he's a great guy. He also wrote. He also co-wrote the the '80s remake of The Blob, which I really like. Oh, that that remake's fucking awesome. And I think he wrote he wrote Nightmare on Elm Street. Three, I think. Three or four. Um, oh my god, did he write Dream Warriors? I think he did Dream Warriors. Oh I could god. be wrong, though. Dream Warriors. Oh, uh, oh my god, he co-wrote co -wrote Dream Warriors. That's amazing. Yeah, he's, Darabot's great. And 
at the at the same time, he Darabot was working on a an Indiana Jones project that alternated between the title Indiana Jones and the Saucer Men from Mars and Indiana Jones and the Kingdoms of the Sun or something like that. And Darabot actually wrote a couple drafts of that, but that movie never went forward for several reasons. Um, and we were eventually graced with it in 2008 under a different title with a completely different script. But hey... <laughs> Uh, and Darabot, you know, he was excited. Darabot said, I'll do it, but I got, he's like, George, you should do the first one all on your own. You have to set up this new series and then I'll come in, I'll do this next one. And, but, but George, there's one piece of advice I want to give you. And this was the advice that supposedly every one of George's filmmaker friends gave him about the prequels. Oh God. Do not start this new trilogy with a nine-year-old Anakin Skywalker. Oh my God. Pretty much uh, supposedly like everyone told him not to do that. And Luke is like, fuck it. I'm doing it. (laughs) Um, Hold my beer. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Oh no. Yeah. Lucas wanted to make the prequels for $50 million each. So 150 million for all the prequels. He saw them as real low-budget films, honestly. <laughs> like, $50 million is not, not like, you know... That's a lot of money even in the 90s. But it's now, like, the new Star Wars is, like, over $200 million. <laughs> And we were just entering that arena where movies were starting to cost, you know, $100 million. I don't remember how much The Phantom Menace cost, but it wasn't $50 million. No, it was, like, double that. It was, like, 115 So that was a big part of it. He wanted to make them low-budget because also... Lucas saw, like he saw the original films, he saw the prequels as a way to finally achieve his independence so he could go off and make his art films that he always wanted to make. Whether or not that's true, I don't know, but that's what he's always said. So yeah, uh, let's get into the writing a little bit, because there's a lot of drafts of The Phantom Menace out there. But almost all of them feature Anakin as a nine-year-old kid. And no matter, Lucas kept trying, but like pretty much all the early drafts Anakin doesn't show up until like the 45 minute mark and making him a nine year old kid ostensibly makes him the main character of the movie. You'd think, but he, the kid's not. So Lucas would struggle with that. I think the final version of the movie, Anakin shows up just over 30 minutes into the movie. Yeah. It's, uh, am it's, I wrong? It's a while. No. Yeah. And like Luke is like around 15 minutes. Uh, so that was a bit of a problem. Um, but the early drafts, there was no Qui-Gon Jinn. There was just Obi-Wan meeting with the Trade Federation, and then he gets betrayed. Um, they try to kill him, and he escapes, and then he meets up with the Queen. Then he meets up with Jar Jar Binks. He takes him to the other Gungans, and all the Gungans in earlier drafts speak perfect English. <laughs> they don't have that weird dialogue that they have in the final version. So Jar Jar goes with the Queen, I mean, goes with Obi-Wan to rescue the Queen, and then they fly out of there and end up on Tatooine. Um, and the queen is like all fucking pissed off about there being a Gungan on board. Uh, the pod race scene is there to, you know, win Anakin his uh, freedom. And, uh, then they leave. And at some point in one of the drafts, Anakin uses his powers to like pull a spaceship out of, out of hyperspace. (laughs) 
And that's the moment where everyone's like, holy shit, this kid's fucking powerful. There's no scene like that anywhere in the prequels. No. And it's baffling because you do need a scene like that to establish that this kid is powerful. They found a way around it, and it turned out to be one of the most controversial things ever to happen to the Star Wars universe. I, that was just one of the versions of the, the, the script that I read. Uh, the most notable thing is Jar Jar speaking perfect English. Um, and Jar Jar and the Gungans are there specifically to set up a battle between droids and, you know, people with spears. <laughs> and it's, that's George Lucas's, like, you know, primitive culture versus technologically advanced culture idea that he's, he really seems fascinated with. It's, it's like him trying to get the Ewoks right again. <laughs> it, like, it, it is a visually interesting like, concept, you know? Yeah, honestly, I think that battle looks fine. Mm-hmm. Like, for what it is, it, that stuff looks better than it, the rest of the movie because it's all digital. Like, you know, we don't have these shots, of, like these realistic shots constantly, like, pulling us out. Yeah, it, it's, it's almost like, don't, don't stab me for this. It's almost like painterly. Like, it looks like a, like a legitimate artist rendition, which with CGI is, you know? But, like, yeah. you, you could take, like, little frames of this and be like, like hang it up and be like, oh, yeah, art. Yeah, no, honestly, all the digital stuff in all three of these movies, like landscape shots, like space shots, they all look amazing. They all look really good. Like, especially at the time, like when you get to see like the, the wide shots of the, the Theed Palace, like that stuff looked pretty amazing for the time and still holds up today. Um, the stuff that doesn't hold up is like Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> oh, yeah. And not just because he's a horribly annoying character. Um, it's just, you know, this is like three years before Gollum and we have an all digital character in this movie and he just hasn't aged well. Yeah. Cause he, that's, that's pre motion capture, right? Like there might be something related to motion capture in the performance, but like they tried to, to, to do that and they mm. couldn't get it working right. And so they just made him a fully digital character, right? Well, they tried, they actually tried like a puppet at one point. Um, like they thought maybe Frank Oz was going to make a puppet Jar Jar. Um, but then Lucas was like, ah, it looks too fake. Cause another thing, Lucas always hated all the puppets in these fucking movies. Oh, <laughs> like I, and honestly, I kind of get where he's coming from. If you're a filmmaker, like, you know, cause he gets to see all the, when I can't imagine it must be a miserable experience to make a star Wars movie because you see all the flaws. Cause you were there on the day that it was shot. <laughs> So you remember all the times the like wires were acting weird, or like you saw the like the pup- puppeteers that are just behind the camera. But when you're an audience member, you don't notice that. But filmmakers probably do, and it really Lucas really noticed it over the years, and it's always bugged him. It really shouldn't, because like Yoda still looks great in Empire, um, and for some reason the Yoda puppet in Phantom Menace looks like a fucking train wreck. I think I know why, or maybe not specifically uh, why. But um, I think they tried too hard to make it animated without animating it themselves, and not that yeah. that's easy. It was, I know it's not a simple task, but um, like look at the way like the eyes like blink, and like when he when he talks, his mouth just flaps up and down, like it's mm-hmm. nothing creative or animated specifically about that movement. The mouth just opens and closes, mm-hmm. and then the the body language is okay, like when he's walking around. 
I think it looks yeah, that's looks a, what is. Those look alright. Yeah, but like when he's in the chair and he's like, you win. It's like fuck. That's yeah. that's horrifying and that shouldn't be. Like not for that mm. reason. And you also get like I there's some of the lighting in this movie always bugs me. Like it's all too fucking bright. And uh, but honestly, I think it looks better than the other two. <laughs> but it's something about this movie. It's like way too bright in some scenes, and specifically the fucking Jedi Council scene. Yeah, I, I don't know uh, what that's about. I don't know what the fuck happened there, but, uh, but like I remember, like there's some really good shots of this movie, and usually they're the shots that are completely digital. <laughs> yeah, like I I like the shots of like the Trade Federation landing. And, you know, like, the slow, like, their ships just coming out and just going through the woods and, like, scaring off creatures. I think some of those shots actually look pretty cool. One shot that looks pretty fucking terrible is uh, there's an all-digital shot of the hangar very early on. <laughs> where we get, like, a reaction shot of, like, the uh, droids, the droid soldiers, like, watching a ship landing. And for some reason, that shot just looks fucking terrible. Oh, there's just but, one shot. It's my, I think it's my favorite shot in the movie, where Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon Jinn are talking after the Jedi Council meeting, and it's on Coruscant, and it's clearly all digital, and it doesn't look real, but something about it looks like very classic Hollywood that Lucas, mm-hmm. I felt, was going for more in these movies, specifically in Attack of the Clones, which we'll get to later. But uh, it feels like a, a really great... It, it should be an iconic shot if the movie around it was stronger. <laughs> A lot of these, sh- there's a lot of things in here that probably could have been iconic. Although some of it's still, you know, pod racing is still a thing. Yeah. Now this is pod racing. <laughs> no, now this is podcasting. Oh, fuck you. No, I got um, that from my buddy Mike. We used to do a Star Wars podcast. Hi, Mike. I'll tell, um, tell your buddy to fuck off. I, I always tell Mike to fuck off because we disagree a lot. But, <laughs> um, but uh,. George Lucas oh, okay, describes so. his own writing and filmmaking style as a jazz riff. And I'm, I have a feeling it's a very, very uh, Ryan Gosling style jazz riff. Because, <laughs> like, he literally, like, I mean, Lucas is a very good idea, man. Mm-hmm. Comes with a lot of really interesting stuff and then doesn't know how to connect them well. <laughs> And I didn't talk about it too much, but he brought in other people to help with the very first Star Wars scripts for the original film. That people who got absolutely no credit for those movies to help kind of rough out the edges that Lucas had brought to him. And if you see like the rough, that, that's the other thing. The thing about Phantom Menace is that if you have read all the really, really rough drafts of Star Wars that are like completely different stories than what we got they feel a lot like what the Phantom Menace is. <laughs> I mean, so you can just see, like, Luke is not really... He, he's, no one else has given him input. He did have a co-writer on Attack of the Clones. He, no one helped him with the prequel, with the Phantom Menace. And Lucas has also said the film is stylistically designed to be a silent film. Uh, I, I don't see that. Neither do I, but I've heard of people who have watched what they call the silent Star Wars. <laughs> like, there's, like, this is how fucked up, like, the Star Wars community is. Like, they find all sorts of ways to try and re- watch the prequels to make them good, as opposed to just watching them. And one of the versions I've heard recommended is to just time the John Williams soundtrack with the movie and watch it on silent. 
just with the John Williams music playing. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I would actually be down to try that. I would too. I've been meaning to, but I, I haven't. And I've heard people have said positive things about watching it that way. <laughs> um, and, you know, of course, there's like tons of fan edits out there of this movie that like remove as much of Jar Jar as possible. Yeah. Oh, I did see one uh, before Force Awakens because obviously everyone's fucking over the moon excited about that one. Um, yeah. And it edits Jar Jar. It gives him a new voice. It's like an alien language voice. It's like... Oh. And uh, there's just subtitles for him. And it plays a little better, but it's still sometimes a little disorienting. Yeah. But, um, yeah, a lot, a lot of fan edits. I think Topher Grace has like yeah, have you heard of the famous Topher Grace one? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen it. I don't think it's available, right? No, it's not available. But supposedly, it's like this, like mythical, like one that's like supposed to be really good. Um, <laughs> which literally, I mean, like I, I talk about like how like I think stuff should be trimmed out of these movies. Like, if I were to trim down Phantom Menace, I would cut like the whole opening scene with the Trade Federation meeting, and like start with the invasion. And have a Jedi show up and rescue the Queen. And that's like the, the opening scene is a Jedi rescuing the Queen in my version of Phantom Menace. Oh. Which doesn't exist because I'm a terrible filmmaker. <laughs> um, but then you could, you could insert the, the big thing. Oh, who are you? I'm, my name's Obi-Wan. I'm here to rescue you. Boom. Yeah, Full boom. Circle. Fucking right there. And you might think that's stupid, but this movie starts with the line, I've got a bad feeling about this. <laughs> so these movies repeat a lot of shit. Um, Anyway, uh, but so like, so you, I would start the movie right there, and then boom, you're on Tatooine within like ten minutes, <laughs> and then we get to know Anakin a little more. Topher Grace's version, the opening is the duel between Qui Gon Obi Wan and Darth Maul. That's his opening scene. Oh shit! And that he edited all the prequels into one movie. Okay, and I, he I've cut out like all too. the shit. He, he cut out all the shit involving the Clone War stuff, really, and he just focused on the Anakin storyline. And supposedly, it works a lot better. And I can't, and that honestly, that's not a bad idea. Um, you can't make it perfect because you're you're working with the tools you have. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's not a bad idea. Uh, have you seen the belated media? What if Star Wars was or Episode One was good? You know, I saw it a long time ago. I don't remember any of it. Okay, and obviously this isn't like a quantifier of like quality because you know we're just fans like talking about that stuff. But like, I I really like the direction that takes where he shifts the the character like the central character being about Obi Wan. Yeah, and we still see Anakin's downfall through his quote unquote trilogy. But, well, that's uh, what yeah. these movies should have been, honestly. Yeah. Um, uh, like, like, how do I say this? That was the intent. Like, back in the, you know, 80s, the idea was that they were going to go back and tell Obi-Wan's story. That's, and that's what these prequels, it, all the interviews, until these movies actually started getting written and, like, started getting made, all the talk about what the prequels were going to focus on was going to be Obi-Wan. Cut to The Phantom Menace, Obi-Wan has less screen time in this movie than Jar Jar Banks. Which is super unfortunate for a lot of reasons, but also Ewan McGregor is really good in these movies. Yeah, he gets he gets fucking nothing to do in this one. Oh yeah, yeah. He's again working with the tools he's got, but 
especially in like stuff like Revenge of the Sith, where he's just working his ass off to deliver some dialogue that's maybe not the greatest. He sells dialogue that should be fucking unsellable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, and just to jump ahead a little bit, because I was, like I said, I was watching the Clone Wars, and they did a scene where they, uh, someone has a bad vision of the future, and they actually edited some of uh, Obi-Wan's dialogue from Revenge of the Sith into the episode. And just hearing that in that context made it, like, really, like, it, it gave me chills watching it, which is something I never feel watching these movies. <laughs> um, and also, it should be pointed out that no, the, the only character with an actual arc in these movies is Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. He's the closest we get to a main character. And, I, and he shows up around the time we ran into Luke. I'm, and I'm sure he would have been a big thing I mean, Jar Jar's key to all of this. Um, I'm sure that was the intent, but because of the backlash, he, you know, by fucking Revenge of the Sith, he has no dialogue. So, like, and his character, like, I always go, like, people complain about Jar Jar, but C-3PO was annoying. First of all, fuck you. C-3PO's great. <laughs> C-3PO's supposed to be, like, obnoxious sometimes. Yeah. He's kind of but, like, Jar Jar is, like, just a mix of bad ideas. <laughs> and for one, there's, like, three poop jokes involving Jar Jar. <laughs> like, that's the thing where, like, if I was Rick McCollum, after watching that nightmare of a rough cut, where you're just frozen in terror at what you just helped me. <laughs> and, I mean, fucking go watch that documentary and just watch, and it's fucking telling just watching the reaction to that movie um i would have been like george fucking cut that fart joke holy shit and george lucas even said while they were making it i don't know if he said this during the that infamous documentary or in some of the pr production diaries that he had posted online but he's like for every one person who likes this two are gonna hate it that was George's view while while making the movie. I, and you know what? Again, to be fair, he he's not wrong. Not wrong. Yeah. Um, but I do think, like, it, I think that no matter what Lucas made, there were probably going to be people who didn't like it. Even if he made, like, a truly great movie. Because Star Wars at this point means, like, a million different things to a lot of people. But Phantom Menace was just, like, throwing... <laughs> You know, gas on that fire. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, um, I want to talk about a couple things. I want to go back to the pod racing because I, I have mixed feelings on that. Uh, but I want to bring up the fact that this, this movie, what Rogue One didn't have, we talked about then, it's kind of romantic. You know, it's, it's very, uh, mostly because John Williams' score, like there's a, a romanticism to the, the space fantasy elements. It feels big. It doesn't, again, this, this movie doesn't really work, but there's, there's something almost uh, like grandiose about it. And this is the most inconsequential Star Wars movie ever, so. Yeah, I but it, honestly, cool. I think you might be right. This one does feel a little bigger than the next two. Uh, which I, don't is know, I don't know about Revenge, but bigger than Attack of the Clones. Well, I think that, once that you start throwing small. in, when you, when you throw in all the stuff about where the clones came from, 
and like the galactic war against the confederacy and like how the like because the next ones really get into how the jedi operate and that to me is what makes those movies feel really small like like uh like i think phantom still sticks to the tradition of we're only getting like a brief glimpse in the one thing happening in the star wars universe which is what the original movies kind of feel like like sure there's this whole story about the empire and the rebellion but we never need to know what's going on with the Empire and the Rebellion to follow the movie, because we're following Luke. We just need to know what's going on with him. And we need enough to carry the movie, but we don't need constant shit. But the, the, once you get into Attack of the Clones, you really need to understand the politics of the universe, and it's executed terribly. Yeah. Oh, and that, that goes to the thing about characters and how there is no central one. I know it's a common point brought up. And, like, if you're going to make an ensemble series of movies, I mean cool but there still has to be like a focus around each individual character and they all have to tie in some way and not everyone kind of does and then i also think that if you're gonna have a central character like like captain america in, in winter soldier he doesn't really have an arc it's the movie around him that has an arc you know yeah and that works and then you go to something like civil war and then it, it doesn't play off as well but they clearly try to do something similar mm-hmm. and uh Again, you could have done that here. Maybe Obi-Wan doesn't have an arc, but everyone around him has an arc, and he informs like the story in like an accessible way. But Yeah. Not what happened. Not what happened. Yeah. And ostensibly when I mean, for Lucas, the main character of this movie is Anakin. Fucking I mean, he said that. And I mean he's gone on record. Once these movies started coming out, that's when Lucas started talking about how, well, the entire Star Wars story is the story of Darth Vader. The tragedy of Darth Vader, if you will. Which I think is a terrible approach. Because <laughs> that's just, that's Lucas letting the real world determine his story more than he should. Which Lucas has actually been pretty good at not letting the real world do that. People talk about Darth Vader all the time. And Darth Vader has like, you know, in all the original movies, he has somewhere between like 15 to 20 minutes of actual screen time. <laughs> In each movie, like, uh, so he's not, he's really shouldn't be the focus. He's a small part of a larger story. And the, the original trilogy, the story, it was Luke's story. And it would have been great if the prequels had been Obi-Wan's story. The guy, and he would have been the guy who fucked everything up, really. And maybe that would explain why he's in exile. Instead of him just choosing to be in exile, but whatever. I have a lot of problems with uh, the shift to Anakin. But in Lucas's mind, this is like, you know, this is like a great tragedy to tell. Which, it kind of, I mean, on some level, there's a lot here. Like, you know, we go back and see what the ultimate evil was like as a nine-year-old kid. And how that nine-year-old kid became the most evil person in the galaxy. It's not executed in, well in any way. But I get why he would focus in on that. I think the prequels with Williams' music too really inform that story that Lucas is trying to tell too, because yeah. it's, like, it's big and Star Wars, and something like Duel of the Fates, while it's like super mm-hmm. cool and makes that scene play way better than how it's cut together. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's also kind of haunting, a little bit. Yeah, and that's when when they bring that back in Revenge of the Sith, it's like ooh, yeah, that's that's kind of a cool thing. I think John Williams was the only guy who kind of was allowed to do what he did. (laughs) 
Like, so if you look at the old way, you know, when they were making these movies, George would go to, like, different departments and be like, all right, I want something like this. You guys figure it out and make it the way you want to make it. And that's what would happen. And Lucas would maybe not be super satisfied with that. Um, I mean, I've talked, we talked a little bit about Lucas kind of taking over Return of the Jedi in post. And uh, he actually re-edited Empire before the release to try and... Uh, fit a better version and everyone involved agreed that Lucas's edit was worse than the original edit. <laughs> so they went back and I'm sure that's always bugged Lucas a little. Um, but now, you know, we cut 1998 or whatever the fuck, uh, 1999 Lucas now ba can basically control every department like directly. Um, he can visit each and every group and tell them what to do and exactly how to do it. And it's the only person he can't really tell what to do is John Williams. And he, told, and he talks to Williams the way he used to talk with, you know, other collaborators. You're like, well, I want to invoke this mood in this scene because this is what this scene is actually about. And that's why the music does a lot of the heavy lifting of the prequels. Oh, it's so good. It, it's um, outstanding. I have a mixed relationship with it because it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I want him to be attached to a better movie. Because <laughs> um, it, it does, like, all the heavy lifting of this movie, really. Like, any scene that kind of works, it's usually because of that score. That score really lifts it up. <laughs> You're not wrong. I just, uh, I, I think Williams is obviously such a talent that, like, it's worth commending, even outside of this, you know? Yeah. And I read some really interesting uh, article recently about how, our, like, how... Uh, Williams like weaved like classic themes into the newer themes to like hint at like what was to come or the echoes we're feeling in Anakin's storyline and uh, in Luke's storyline because like Anakin is basically the flip side of Luke. He's a kid taken from Tatooine to become a Jedi, and Anakin fucking falls, and Luke doesn't. So, uh, shut the fuck up, cat. <laughs> Can't even um, hear it. He's fucking Bob. He's a fucking whining piece of shit cat. <laughs> um, you don't hear that, really? Yeah. He's like, "Hey, come here. Where are you? Hold on, I gotta shut this fucker up." Okay. He's like looking for me, but I was right here. <laughs> I haven't moved my seat. <laughs> oh, there you go. Come over here. You fucking dope. Ah, fucker. <laughs> Knocking all my shit over. Um, God, what the fuck? Right, I was talking about like the echoes and shit. Okay. Shut the fuck up! <laughs> that one I did here. He's right next to me now. <laughs> um, but, uh... Fuck. Echoes, uh, soundtrack. Well, also, like, people, you know, now they talk about, like, what order do you watch these movies in? Um, and so far, the best version I've heard of watching them in, if you're going to watch all of them, is to watch, you know, four and five first, then watch two and three, never watch episode one, <laughs> and then watch uh, Return of the Jedi. Um, because once you get into two and three, you're really watching Luke's arc, except everything goes wrong. Oh, I, you know, and, I, I somehow never, like, aligned it that clearly. Um, yeah, I mean... That's because that's partly because the execution isn't super great. Yeah, you know, 
there's a very forced love story in the next ones that are a big part of why he falls. And that sh- definitely will remove like the connection between him and Luke because Luke was never had like that love thing going on, but whatever. Yeah. And that's we'll definitely, that. yeah, that's a huge thing we're talking about, especially with how the Jedi treat quote unquote attachments. Yeah. And it's, it's, there's some disturbing implications there. Yeah, a lot of disturbing implications. Yeah. Here's a question. Here's a question, though. All right. Why the fuck does Naboo have democratically elected queens? I don't know. I got nothing. Like, honestly, I feel like this was Lucas going, like, in the rough draft, he's like, well, Leia's a princess, so her mother has to be a queen. <laughs> and then he totally forgot that, like, oh, yeah, that's, there's too many fucking plot holes there. <laughs> <laughs> so by the next one, Padme's a senator. Like, did they mention? I tried. I don't remember. I should have been paying attention to this. But did they mention if she's democratically elected in this movie? Uh, I I don't think so. In the next one, they do because she suddenly becomes a senator. Yeah. I, or does Naboo just like they become like a democratic society by that point? Because ten years. No, because there's a queen in the next movie. You're right. And she, she, I know she mentions in Attack of the Clones she was elected because she was 13, making her the youngest elected official in the history of Naboo. Like, she specifically says that. She's like, and also, I mean, that's part of the story with, the, like, the real behind-the-scenes story of this movie is that, you know, Palpatine's behind it all. He's, he's the one, he's pulling all the strings, he's creating a crisis just so he can gain more political power. Yeah, which, compelling as a, as a villain threat. Yeah. And I honestly, I kind of like that it's like subtly in the background, like you, like it, you don't really need to know about it. It's just a bit. But you need a, you you need another story that we actually do care about. Yeah. Uh, oh, and uh, and that's actually Ian McDermott. Really quick, how good is he? You know, he, he's fucking great. Doesn't have a lot to do in this one. No. But even like with the little he has to do in the first two prequels, he's a guy that like when he's on screen, he's very engaging. And he delivers the dialogue with like kind of like a bit of a like flair. I mean, he's he's a fun actor to watch in these movies. Yeah, and he has to play two roles. He has to play the the calm, helpful senator or chancellor eventually, you know, like mm. kind of like guiding our protagonist along. And then the flip side, he has to be super sinister. Yeah. Although there's something about this version where like before the the emperor gets scarred or whatever the fuck happens to him in Revenge of the Sith. Uh, there's something about like the emperor that feels a little goofy in these movies, where it's literally like Palpatine like closes the blinds in his office and puts on a cloak. <laughs> like you kind of imagine, like when I imagine the emperor, like I imagine him like sitting in like some throne room, like on the other side of the galaxy. Yet he's pulling all the strings, and no one knows what's secretly going on. Or you know, if he is at the heart of you know politics on Coruscant. There's a like secret underground in Coruscant where he goes, and there's all these like Sith worshippers, and like you know that's where the Red Guards come from and all that shit. But instead, it really feels like he's just a dude who like goes like, "All right, I'm gonna be alone for the next hour," <laughs> just puts on a cloak <laughs> and he's like, "Newt Gundry, why haven't you signed the treaty?" <laughs> it it feels a little hokey in this one. 
And I mean, I think one of my favorite things pointed out by uh, the red letter media reviews, which the fact that I'm even mentioning those now, people are like, if anyone's listening to this who doesn't know me, they're immediate like, everything I say is now I shouldn't. No one should listen to anything I complain about because I like the RLM reviews because the RLM reviews say stupid things in them. I don't agree with everything said in those reviews, <laughs> but they're very entertaining reviews. <laughs> and the one I like is that he points out how Newt Gunray gets arrested at the end of these movies. And he does, and like, he's like, I have a hard time believing these guys didn't immediately start pointing fingers. <laughs> <laughs> Like, we were talking, there was a weird guy in a cloak that kind of looks like Palpatine. <laughs> someone should check in on that. Yeah, someone should look in on that. Um, but apparently that didn't happen. And somehow he's not in jail by the next movie. Uh, but whatever. I'm sure the EU explains that. You want to talk about some of the subtle politics of this movie? Sure. Uh, one of the best reviews of this movie I heard came from... Uh, Matt Oswalt, Patton Oswalt's brother, uh, where he said, this is like C-SPAN, except everyone's wearing monster masks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so the two heads of the Trade Federation are Newt Gunray and Lot Dodd. And they're named after Newt Gingrich. <laughs> And Trent Lott, who were both uh, big players in the Republican Party. <laughs> and a big thing happening during, uh, you know, the writing of The Phantom Menace was the Republican Revolution. Um, where Newt Gingrich started this whole contract with America, which was a big thing about deregulation. And uh, letting businesses control a lot more things. Which thankfully worked out really well. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and that's why suddenly the villains of this movie are a trade federation. You know, letting a big conglomerate. The politics of these movies get really confusing. And even the Clone Wars make them even more confusing. Whatever, the trade federations are the bad guys in this. I don't really understand what yeah. they're they, after, but... They, they don't really have, like, an attainable goal other than, like, invading Naboo to get uh, Amidala to sign some stuff. I guess. Well, the only thing I can I can surmise, and I'm guessing this is explained better right. in the EU. Like someone right now who who's like fucking can quote that shit like a nun, is probably screaming at the computer. But the best I can tell is that like Naboo must have some sort of valuable resource on it because it's a very lush and like beautiful planet, right? Yeah. Um, it must have some sort of resource on it that they sell very cheaply to the rest of the galaxy. And the Trade Federation probably controls that resource from another planet, but there's not enough of it, so they have to sell it for more. So they want to impose taxes on Naboo. Or maybe because Naboo is such a lush planet, Naboo doesn't buy as much from the rest of the galaxy. So they want to go, hey, well, if you're going to buy from us from now on, you have to pay these higher taxes. I don't know how this leads to an invasion, but that's all I can kind of surmise from all this nonsense. Yeah, uh, but I do like that. Again, George Lucas is is really pushing that 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 political angle. You know, I mean, in Star Wars, we talked about how the the rebels are the Viet Cong, and so mm -hmm. like you don't have a uh, a global 
event as like recognizable as that per se when he mm. did the prequels. So it makes sense for him to go slightly more uh, political instead of like about international warfare or anything because that's not happening right now, thankfully. Well, by the time you get to the the uh, Revenge of the Sith, I mean it's very the, the Emperor is very clearly an allegory for President George Bush. <laughs> Um, but again, like, uh, when he wrote the pre, when he was like originally like developing the prequels or like the backstory to star Wars before they became the prequels, the emperor was supposed to be like a Nixon type character. A lot of similarities between Bush and Nixon. (laughs) Yeah. There's always been politics weaved into it, into these movies, other than, I guess we could say the newest one fucking, uh, force awakens at a time when maybe we need it. Actually, I would, I, I have some stuff on that. I cannot wait to talk yeah, well, about that movie because I, I think there's a little something there. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, we'll get to that. I'm not, I'm not expecting to see it in these movies, but we could talk about it. Okay, so really quick, the, the pod racing. This is a lighter, yes. lighter note. A lot of people are really drawn to the pod racing scene and talk about it as one of the highlights of the prequels. It is a thrilling encapsulation of something very Star Wars. This is what I've been told because I don't, I, I can see it, but I never feel it. Yeah. How do you feel? Um, I feel kind of the same way, honestly. Um, on paper, the pod race should be pretty cool. I think it's the and, way it's filmed. And taken out of context, it's, there's some stuff in it that I like. And it's one of my favorite levels in the Star Wars Lego video game. <laughs> Oh, okay. Which is a great uh, series of games, by the way. Lego Star Wars. Yes, they're all Everyone very fun. Them. Yes, yeah, they're a ton of fun. Yeah, I I do think it comes down to one the way it's shot, and the two the fact that by the time we get to the pod race, we're very confused about what the fuck's going on in this movie. <laughs> like there seems to be a war going on, but we've forgotten it for a little bit, and now it's about rescuing this kid for some reason. Who's got something called? He's got something called metachlorians, but we don't know what the fuck that is. Um, Because that's unexplained for, like, another half hour. Um, But for some reason, both Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are really impressed by it. And we know who Anakin is because we know the movies. And also, Anakin's the product of a virgin birth. Which, fuck that. I mean, that's fucking stupid. But I really dislike, like, the divinity of Darth Vader shit. There's something to be said, I think, about the idea of the Chosen One type story. Because for a while, I was just like, fuck those stories. They're all shit. And then I watch like Kung Fu Panda and I'm like, oh yeah, that's a good movie. Okay, but that's the exception. And, and like, I, I keep going back and forth in this thing. And while I think it's the wrong approach for Darth Vader, I think theoretically, if that's the route some Star Wars sequels take, it's not a bad one. It's, it's not a- awful. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, they could have done it well. Um, I could have done without the Virgin Burst shit, though. <laughs> uh, well, that's just a little... T- that's a little too on the nose for me. Although, I have you heard the implications that maybe it was not a virgin birth and that Palpatine had something to do with it? Well, yeah, this, that's all explained in the book Darth Plagueis. Yeah. They tried to like do something with the Force and fucking created a virgin birth. Yeah, funky, um, funky stuff. Funky shit. Um, yeah. but back to but, the pot uh, racing. 
Well, no, I got one more thing to say <laughs> okay. about cho the chosen one bullshit, which is that like, you know, I actually think the chosen one thing works all right in the Harry Potter books. I have problems with those books. But because the, the chosen one thing is actually kind of a fake out because there ends up being two chosen ones. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and that's never really brought up, but there it's if you watch how the events of those books play out, there are two chosen ones in the Harry Potter books. And that's not just fan theory talk; that's very clearly what's happening. Yeah. In the text. So, like, I've seen it done. Like, it's done fine in other areas. Just not here. And and speaking of on the nose stuff, and one of the things about the pod race that's a bit of a problem is that it's very on the nose. Just the you know redo of the chariot chase in Ben Hur. I mean, the whole buildup is just like the like Ben Hur, and you know we know Lucas, you know, famously takes shit from like all sorts of movies when making the uh, the original Star Wars. But it now it doesn't really feel like he was like inspired by that moment. He just felt like, well, that's a cool moment. That's somewhat similar to something I want to do, so I'm just going to copy it wholesale. <laughs> There's no like you know, again, like it doesn't mesh as well as stuff did in the other ones. I mean, the whole tattooing detour, like as a whole, just doesn't it doesn't matter, other than like yeah, it's a, a It's a detour, is what it is. I mean, imagine if you imagine if you started the story off with like you know Anakin growing up on Tatooine, and he's just kind of hanging out looking at those twin suns, and suddenly fucking he's looking up at the sky and a fucking spaceship crashes near him and he goes to check and it's it's a ship carrying a queen who's escaped and uh and a jedi and they need help and anakin decides to help them in exchange for anakin getting freedom so anakin's like hey you have to help me win this pod race so i can become free and then i'll come with you and help you with your bullshit you know could have worked but no one was telling george no no one's being like hey george let's move this like really if you, these movies still have a, would have a lot of flaws but they'd be a lot easier to digest if someone just came along and went like well move this scene change the nature of this scene we need a scene like that just move some things around a little bit it's more frustrating than anything like i don't get i don't get mad about the prequels i just get kind of sad that i don't like them as much as i want to i was madder about them when i thought that was going to be that was the last thing star wars was going to do because i was one of those idiots who thought that no one would ever make a star wars sequel because, I mean, but fuck, that money's just sitting there. Someone was going to do it. Like, <laughs> so now that, I know, now that I live in a world where there's going to be one Star Wars movie a year, I'm not as mad at the prequels. Because now Star Wars has a chance to get a whole lot better and a whole lot worse. And now, as far as I'm concerned, there are now five solid Star Wars movies out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have trouble. Obviously, you know, like what you like. But I, I can't believe there are some people that just totally negate the new movies because of their love for the prequels. I've seen this online. Yeah. Which is, it's, you know, I mean, like what you like, but I mean, that's, that seems like an odd stance to take. Like, it's just, well, it, that's, those thoughts are so alien to me. I really don't, like, I can't even, like, I get why, I understand why some people like Batman v Superman. And that's a movie I like on no level. <laughs> but I get why some people like it. And not in a pandering, like, people like it because they're idiots. Like, I get what people take away from those movies. I don't know what people get out of these prequels, other than that they grew up with them. 
They're just, I, they do nothing for me. I want them to do, like, I'm never going into these movies with all my guard up. Like, I want to like these movies. And to talk about the pod race a little bit, one of the things that makes this pod race really suck, we're going from the fun action of the pod race, and we're constantly cutting back to, like, goofy shit going on with Jar Jar, with Jabba the Hutt, with these announcers that are talking goofy. And it, like, destroys the tension of the scene. And it also doesn't help that we don't care about what's going on with any of these characters. And that every time we cut to Jake Lloyd with that stupid little helmet on, sitting in his pot race, he doesn't have a look on his face like he's in the middle of an intense race. Oh, okay. We've got to talk about Jake Lloyd because, you know, he's just a kid. And mm. it was clearly the wrong choice for a nine-year-old Anakin Skywalker. It's like, and if you watch that, if you watch that documentary, there's that scene where they're like, "Well, this one kid has more experience and is clearly better." <laughs> and then George Lucas picks Jake Lloyd. Yeah, you can see it. You see the the, the practice with Natalie Portman, and you can you can see who the right choice is out of those yeah. ki- handful of kids that they show in the doc. Um, and just poor Jake Lloyd. He gets you know he's a kid, and then he got like that horrible fan backlash and like. Yeah, he didn't deserve any of that. Yeah, no. If, if you're talking shit about a nine-year-old kid, you can go fuck yourself. Yeah, don't be... I mean, I get on here and I get angry about shit, and I'm fucking around. Like, I'm not... I never really wish... I don't wish violence on anyone. I mean, but, like, there are people out there that will, like, send... Like, George Lucas has gotten death threats sent to him over the years, over these prequels. Like, that's fucking ridiculous, man. Like, at some point, you gotta go, they are just movies. George Lucas as a human being is worth more than any of these movies. That's just how the world works. Yeah. Like, if, if you're getting, like, legitimately upset over, like, someone's art, um, because there's clearly passion in these movies, you know? And if you're going to talk about bad movies, I think, while I don't think they're good, you know, they're, they're, I'm glad they exist, at least. You can see where Lucas's priorities are in these movies. They just don't happen to be a compelling story. <laughs> But yeah, if you if you're if you're mad about these movies, maybe go take a walk, think about them. Yeah, I mean, and you know, you're mad about them because you love Star Wars at one point in your life, <laughs> and try to remember why you loved them, and that that's a part of your life. It's not your life, and some for some people, it's a it's a lot of their life. I mean, you get people out there, you know, fans who are really into it. They go to conventions, they dress up as shit. Got the, like, people who build their own working R2-D2s. You have that whole, like, the 501st fan group. You know, the, all the Stormtrooper guys. And that's great. Make it a part, but you gotta make it a part of your life. Don't make it all of your life. Even dudes who work at Lucasfilm, whose entire job is for Star Wars to be the biggest thing in their life, Star Wars isn't the biggest thing in their life. Because that's just unhealthy, you know? It's, yeah, it is. And I'm not trying to be like a dick because it is like a little, you know, pandering when you're like fucking because it feels like I'm saying that this is all childish and that you should let it go. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that understand that there's more out there. And honestly, if you want good, if you if you don't like the prequels or you currently don't like the new Star Wars movies that are out. Fucking watch anything else. Because <laughs> all of it has been has taken something from Star Wars. There's a million things out there that are 
you could call great Star Wars sequels because they wouldn't exist in a world without Star Wars. I mean, I think about like Avatar The Last Airbender, which is a great show about a chosen one and a great hero's journey. And it follows a very similar structure to Star Wars. Eerily similar. And not, not in and a it's bad gr- way. Yeah, not in a bad way. And they're great. Like both incarnations of The Last Airbender are great. Not the live-action movie. Yeah, I was like, clarify, clarify. Yeah, the two cartoons. And fucking, I think, like, you know, when when the the year this came out was the year The Matrix came out, which is also a great hero's journey story. Not a story you can get sequels from, but a very good, solid, standalone story. And then, just over the horizon, within two years, we're going to get the, the fucking Lord of the Rings adaptations and Harry Potter in the same year. And those are big movies, not just because their, their source material is big, but because Star Wars was big. So fucking there's other shit out there. And if you happen not to like anything mentioned, then find, just find something else. That's it. Yeah, keep, there's fucking go watch anything. I mean, really, that's the thing. Whenever people are like upset about Star Wars, I'm always like, well, there's so much more. Like, fucking watch some Kurosawa films. Watch some stuff that Lucas took direct inspiration from. If you really want to expand your Star Wars canvas, I mean. There's so much you could do. Like, that was why when, like, Force Awakens was coming out and there was, like, you know, it could suck, it could be great. It didn't really matter to me because we already live in a great post-Star Wars world of just millions of different things that you can look at and watch and read and play. And I don't need Star Wars to be around forever. It looks like it's going to be around for a long time. <laughs> I would rather it, you know, come back every couple of years to, you know, like check in on it. But it, I don't need it to be around forever. And honestly, I feel like maybe it shouldn't, at least in a continuous manner. I have very mixed feelings about the yearly Star Wars thing. Yeah. But uh, th- there'll be a time to talk about that, too. Mm-hmm. Well, Matt, is there anything else you want to bring up with the Phantom Menace before we wrap up? I want to talk about some positives real quick because I don't think I said anything positive. Uh, I, you know what? I'm surprised at how calm we actually were for this one. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think again, I, we're so removed from it at this point. We're not in that like zeitgeist of like the like it has just come out, and you know, because every fan had to go through the experience of. Watching it, being really confused by it, and then trying to watch it again, and then when you're rewatching it, that's where you start deciding if you like it or you don't like it. No one walked out of it the first time going, that was amazing. <laughs> Everyone's went, all right, I need to watch that another time. And some of us came out and went, yeah, it was pretty good. And some of us came out and went, that really sucked. <laughs> and again, it's easy to not be angry about it when it's not, it's no longer the last thing that Star Wars is going to be. And a certain cartoon, I think, made up for a lot of the problems of these movies, but we'll get to that eventually. I am genuinely excited to talk about that because there are issues I have with Phantom Menace specifically and how maybe it treats its villain of, that are kind of rectified in Clone Wars for me. Because mm-hmm. Darth Maul is kind of amazing we didn't character. even talk about Darth Maul. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to kind of save it, but I'll just mention really quick. Yeah. He's a cool-looking villain. 
There's literally nothing else to him. Yeah, but you know what? We do have to talk about one thing. All right. That I hinted at talking about we never got to. Okay. <laughs> Medichlorians. That's the word <laughs> that someone, you know, depending on who you are, when you hear that word, you fucking lose your fucking shit. Um, from my understanding, you know, people are upset at Medichlorians because they think it gives the force a biological origin instead of a mystical one, right? Yeah. That's my understanding, but I, I, I never really bothered to, like, look into Medichlorians. Um, I don't know what the EU says about them, but this movie barely says anything about Medichlorians. Yeah, my, my interpretation from the movies on screen is that he's just, that's like a quantifier of, like, power, I guess. Well, like, to me, it says sense. that it, it's, it's in all living things. And if you're more, and it's just sensitive to the force. So if you have more force around you, your metachlorians act up. It's like Crohn's disease. Certain en- you're overproducing a certain enzyme. <laughs> but uh, for for me, that's it. It never bugged me in like that. I don't think it, make, it explains that the force is biological. I really don't think that's what it does. Maybe it does. Maybe Lucas has said somewhere on the record that, oh, no, the Force is biological, which is kind of lame. But I do hate Metachlorians. And you know why? Why? Because it's fucking lazy screenwriting. (laughs) They're like, Anakin is powerful. I think he's the one that is destined to bring balance to the Force, whatever the fuck that means. And why does Qui-Gon believe this? Did he see Anakin do something? Did Anakin make a prediction that came true in some like really big way? Did Anakin show that he had, like was when the pod race was happening, did something go wrong and suddenly Anakin used this weird power and he fucking made his ship, like his ship was falling apart, but then he pulled his whole ship back together in one instant and won the race. And that's something that not even like a what like a Jedi who's been training his whole life can do, but Anakin, a small child, did it. No, it's because Qui Gon gave him a blood test and it said he was powerful. That's my problem with it too. Like otherwise, yeah. I'd, I don't think it, I'd have that much of a problem with it. But it feels like for a movie that really takes its time to tell its story, for the worst, in my opinion, um, yeah. it didn't need to be there. Yeah. And I think the thing is with these movies, the, like the nerd and everyone always gets caught up in very specifically the story and like, you know, character changes and stuff where you're like, this isn't what Star Wars is like, you know, and all that's very nerdy and really doesn't matter. <laughs> Honestly, I think if I approached Phantom Menace more as a Star Wars fan than a film fan, I would say Phantom Menace is okay. In terms of Star Wars stuff being in the movie. But as a film fan, I think the movie's a disaster. <laughs> I think it does a terrible job telling its story, and that's really the problem I have with it. I, you know what? Yeah, on the filmmaking level, it's, that's where the big issues lie. You know, I mean, if it was a really well made movie that kind of, went against the grain of what people perceive Star Wars to be, quote-unquote. It's, um, 
I bet a lot more people let it slide anyways. Yeah. At least more more the the, like the critical type of uh, film fan. I think I mean like we were saying with the with Force Awakens, like with the the backlash that, that movie's receiving. Um. I think there's always going to be a contingent of fans that will never be satisfied and will always complain about things. But I think it would be less. I mean, the reason is there's a reason why the, none of the criticisms of force awakens have really gone mainstream other than, you know, it being a repeat of a new hope. That's kind of the only one you really hear. And even that's kind of bullshit. I also think the reason why we're hearing it more now is because uh, South Park did an episode where they said Force Awakens sucked. Oh. I think we had a lot of dudes out there that watch Star uh, that watch South Park, and that they're just repeating. I mean, because I've heard it on like actual talk shows where they use that South Park episode as a reference point. Jesus. Um, where they bring up the very real criticism of you know movies being about like a lot of movies today being about hey you remember this you remember this character you remember this moment which the Force Awakens does do too much, in my opinion. But that's not a way to cr- uh, critique a film. Yeah, it's almost like there's a million other aspects that go into filmmaking and storytelling mm-hmm. that people kind of don't address when they talk about big movies like that. Yeah. And everyone's entitled to their opinion, but if you like Rogue One more than Force Awakens, I think there's something wrong with you. That's a good way to end this. Okay. Sure. What if you like uh, Phantom Menace more than Force Awakens? I I don't know what planet you're on. <laughs> I re- I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be a dick. I I've seen these movies so many times now, and I remember when I was a kid, I did like these movies. But I will say, I always watched the prequels less than the original films. And for a long time, I had the prequels on DVD, and the originals only on VHS. So I was more willing to put up with shitty VHS quality. <laughs> <laughs> then watch the prequels. I never felt compelled to watch them. All the joy of the prequels for me that in my childhood really came down to some of the video games I played and all the Lego sets I built that were all prequel based. Other than that, I was not like a big prequel guy. And I think that's where we're going to have to end it. I guess because we still got a lot more prequel shit to talk about. Yeah. Uh, um, and that's the thing. We can go on forever talking about these movies. And I'd rather yeah. have a movie do that than leave no impact on me at all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was like me trying, what was, when I was trying to talk about fucking uh, Alien Resurrection, I could barely get anything out about that fucking movie. <laughs> Other than my just abject hatred of it. Just. <laughs> so, yeah. Also, go out, and if you like Star Wars, and maybe didn't like the prequels, or you do like the prequels and you don't like that I'm shitting on it, and you don't like what Disney's doing with Star Wars right now, go out and make something of your own. Not just, not to, like, you know, that's not like an insulting thing to be like, well, I want to see you do better. I'm just saying you get a lot of enjoyment out of trying to make your own things. And you'll have a good time. So go do that. Matt, where can the people find you? You can find me at EmperorOTN at Twitter.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Waffles. Links to everything over there. President Diego, yada, yada. Uh, 
find my stuff at audiences everywhere. Waffle Press. Oh, like, subscribe. If you didn't like it, like and subscribe anyways, because you might find something you do like. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We've been professionally unprofessional. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. <laughs> Peace.